At the start of this year, I was heading back to Chicago for the second semester of my university degree. And while I should have been spending more time on that degree, I was frantically taking calls between classes, pitching to investors, or telling my professors I had week-long illnesses to travel around everywhere from Miami to Europe to West Africa, building my startup with my co-founder. Since then, we've gone full-time. And over that time, one person's been particularly close to our journey. Our first and closest advisor, Andrew Savage. And today, I'm in conversation with him. The past year, more than anything, with the experiences it's given me, has given me time to think. And this podcast is a collection of my thoughts and the ideas of my guests. So, without further ado, a quick introduction before the video recorded episode with Andrew Savage. Andrew Savage is a VP and founding member at Lime, a multi-billion dollar startup named as one of the top 100 most influential companies by Time magazine. In fact, in most major cities in five continents around the world, you'd be hard-pressed to go a couple of hundred metres without seeing a Lime bike or scooter. Andrew's also previously worked as a campaign lead for President Obama and Senator-elect Peter Welch. His journey from rural Vermont to pushing innovative change on the global stage, more than anything exudes a wealth of experience and counsel, but to me personally, and my co-founder, he's been an advisor to us at our company, Arda, for almost a year now. Such has been our relationship, that when I finally pulled the trigger to launch this podcast, I had no doubt in my mind that Andrew should be its very first guest. At every turn, he's reminded me of what's important while growing a business. And as someone like me, and many of you who don't have technical backgrounds, how one can go about creating grassroots change through working with individuals, creating stories, and spreading value. It's something he's all too used to, as Lime has grown to 250 cities in five continents, with a total of over 250 million rides in just five years. It's a special story, and I think there's much to glean and to confront. In this conversation, we start from Andrew's true beginnings, growing up in a self-sustaining environment in rural Vermont, and his journey into the public sector and to Congress. I tussle with Andrew's ideas on sustainability and how Lyme's at the forefront of changing the way we move in cities. And we'll talk about the challenges of growing a business, influencing society and problem solving through innovation and leadership. As will be in future episodes of this podcast, there are times we disagree. For example, while I tend to fall on the sceptical side on the environmental issue, aligning my views with the likes of Bjorn Lomborg, I always value the opportunity to illuminate the shadows of my thoughts in conversation. I treat my ideas as as malleable, modular, and as such they evolve through time. And these conversations are, are just a glimpse into that process and similarly as you'd expect there are times Andrew and I agree and there are core beliefs we share and in that way this podcast is a way of critiquing the world we live in by sparring with ideas dancing with them and while these guest podcasts by dint of their nature primarily focus on my guests ideas rather than my own you can hear more from me directly via my Substack writing, artwork, or future episodes of this podcast, all linked in the description. As you'll be able to tell, this episode is the first of this podcast. There are an abundance of moments which I know I fall short on, 
moments where I'm caught in hesitancy or stutter, moments where I could allow for a smoother flow, challenge more, or redirect in a truer manner. Episode by episode, I'll keep improving and will always listen to you well. So, without further ado, let us go to the place between shadows and light, with Andrew Savage and I. Andrew, it's, uh, it's wonderful to have you here as the first guest on this podcast. Uh, we started our journey about a year ago now uh, at Harvard Innovations Lab. And since then, you've become a really close advisor to Jan and I at Arda, uh, helping us through some tough challenges, uh, but really helping to forge our progress. So firstly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great to be with, it's great to be with you. I'm excited uh, to have the conversation. Yeah, no, it sh- should be awesome. Um, it's such has been your journey for, from public policy uh, to, to being part of the founding team uh, of a multi-billion dollar company that has transformed urban culture um, that we'll have plenty to talk about. Uh, but before we get on to, to, let's say, your conventionally defined career, um, I wanted to ask, start by asking you about what gives you your fuel, uh, your career, though perhaps more focused on its principles, societal impact and, and communication, has been diverse in its structure, uh, journeying from the public sector to, as I said, Lime, one, one of the biggest startups and, and companies in the world. Um, what is it about you that makes you see the way see the world in the way you do, um, and confront it in the way you do? Yeah, that's a. I knew you were going to come in with a, a curveball right off the start bat. That's strong, a tough one. Why but not? <laughs> yeah, start strong. Well, no, I'm I'm happy to chat about it. And again, thanks so much for having me on. It's been actually a a, a real pleasure to work with you and Jan, and I'm happy to have this conversation as well. You know, I. I definitely think about the foundation that I have just as a person as fueling a lot of the work that I do today professionally. I grew up in a pretty rural area of Vermont where um, we really had a lot of self-reliance going on. My family, for example, cut all the firewood that we needed for the year, which was eight to 10 cords of wood. It wasn't all the heating fuel that we had, but you know, just that process um, from felling a tree, to cutting it up, to loading it to, in the truck, to bringing it up the hill, to unloading it, to bring it into the basement, to then restacking it, and to then ultimately having it end up in the, 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 the furnace in the basement. That type of thing, which you could replicate in many other facets of my upbringing, really instilled a sense of place, but also a sense and an ethic toward sustainability and um, you know caring for the land. And you know, we didn't turn the thermostat up in the house without thinking about all that effort that it took to heat the house. And it also brought my family and I together. I can't say that I loved all the hard work. I'm sure as a kid, I was a pain in the butt uh, at times getting out there and doing the work. But it also instilled a real sense of family and a sense of work ethic. And I think, you know, those three things, the the, the land ethic, the the family ethic and the work ethic have been things that have stuck with me. And I think there's probably threads from that throughout my career. And I hope um, throughout my life as a person as well, outside of my career. Um, and it certainly has been something that's instilled my interest in in public policy and in, in public policy's impact on my community, as well as, as my interest in sustainability and doing something about climate change. So 
um, I think that's a decent place to start to give you a sense of, you know, kind of what it looked like um, as, uh, as, you know, maybe a, a younger person before my professional career, uh, uh, which led into obviously the professional work that I've done. Yeah, amazing. And we'll pick up a lot on a lot of those themes um, as we go, I'm sure, especially coming to the sustainability piece. Um, and well, the fact that that upbringing is, uh, is reality still for, for so many around the world. Um, and and it's so core of people's lives around the world but as, as you said coming on to to your start the start of your career um and, and the public sector um you started uh working in communications for, for who is now senator-elect peter welch um and also later for the obama campaign um you also then went to, to be, on to become a deputy chief of staff uh in congress um i've always found political campaigning and rhetoric to be somewhat sticky if I'm, if I'm being completely honest. And I, th I think that holds true for, for quite a lot of people. Um, what I think should be messaging based on, on public policy outcome and individual encouragement and enablement can quickly descend into, into propaganda. Um, what lessons did you learn about creating value through communication um, and, the, and stories about connecting to people uh, from those more political days that you've taken with you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I would say that I was really only interested in politics from the get-go in that it related to the community that I cared about. And it wasn't getting into politics for the sake of politics as a sport or as a, as a business or any of the other things that politics um, can be for other people. But it was really all about serving and, and, and being part of uh, service for a community that I cared about. And I was very, very lucky to stumble upon um, a then Senator Welch, who later became Congressman Welch, State Senator Welch, uh, who became Congressman Welch through the campaign work that you referenced that I was on that campaign and, and then followed him to Capitol Hill, who now, as you noted, is back to Senator Welch. It took me some time. He's U.S. Senator Welch. So it was an amazing journey be working with him, in part because he was so focused on politics, not for the sport or for anything grander. It was really for serving the community. And I know it feels very cliche to say that, but I think there are people still in it for the right reasons. And it really instilled in me a, a faith of why politics can matter. And to your more appropriately to your question or specifically to your question, why communications matters. You know, we really worked hard to communicate his priorities, to communicate the things that he was working on, but also receive communication from Vermonters as we were you know, in Washington, for example, or running for Congress. Um, it's so important to be good listeners. And so it's a true two-way street if you're doing it right. And I think it's something that is often lost in the world of politics and campaigning, but is super important. And one of the reasons that I think being on the early Obama campaign, um, why, why that felt so um, important and felt so pivotal was that I think he brought a different sense of national politics to the equation and clearly was very successful at that in communicating to new people, to new voters, and also communicating about issues in a different way that really brought um, them down to or um, accessible to um, people with whom they impacted. And so, you know, I think there's a lot to politics that is incredibly valuable, um, especially as you think about the role that it plays in 
everyday life. I'm really glad you brought that up because if I give you my opinion, I think the way politics has moved over the past few years, it's got too remote, too bureaucratic, mm. um, and too top down, too top down uh, at the central national level. Um, and, and I think that's really not a direction we should be going in. Um, and a lot needs to be done to reverse that. Um, yeah, I just want to add, an, add a point there, yeah. not to interrupt you yeah, as the host, but I think your point about being remote is a fascinating one. And before this U.S. election, where there were a ton of election deniers running and there was a lot of fear about what those election deniers would do if they lost their own local election, whether they're running for governor or secretary of state, et cetera, um, I thought, and I was having a maybe Pollyannish approach to the conversation with a number of political friends, I had this feeling that that remoteness goes away when you get more to the local level. It is really hard to deny an election when you're in that community or you've lost and you have to go face people at the grocery store. And I think that is one of the fundamental differences between what we've seen in the last um two plus years in the United States at the federal level where it is very remote and the distinction when it becomes more local. And my hope is that, to your point, that we get away from some of the remoteness and have more of the in-person stuff because I think that's where you get the, the real interactions that have real value. Right. I mean, the interesting thing I find there is that it, it's affected both sides of the aisle. I mean, your classical conservatism, um, more, more sort of liberal conservatism is tending towards uh, small state limited governance. Um, but even, as you mentioned, even, even the right, especially in America, has really got caught up in, in well, as, as the left has, uh, in, in controlling big state uh, and national agendas uh, in a really blanketing way. Um, and, and yeah, as, as you say, um, we, need to, we need to really move back to the local level. Um, but but coming back coming back to Lyme um, and how the communications lessons that you learned transpires into into your work at Lyme, um, we we know Lyme wasn't the first micromobility solution. Uh, that that's no secret. Uh, London's had forest bikes for a number of years, and and I think you can tra trace bike sharing all the way back to the nineteen sixties in, in Amsterdam. Um, but with companies like Lyme in the past few years, uh, we've really seen a boom, and I think that's down to to a cultural shift. Uh, amongst all else so linking back to to those lessons and and your early days in, in communication um how does that influence the way you and lime go about trying to change culture and behaviors at the societal level yeah i mean we really needed to communicate something new and total and not i wouldn't say totally different but but technologically different to the cities, the early cities that we wanted to serve. You're right that the idea of bike share or mobility sharing um, has existed for some time in different forms and different functions. Um, but what really changed right around the 2017 era when Lyme was founded was a technological shift. Um, the, the fact that you could have a GPS unit in these shared bikes, later scooters, and people could access them widely through having a smartphone. Those two things didn't exist several years prior to that in, with Ubiquity. And what we needed to do was communicate a vision for a technology, which was the ability to have free floating or what was called dockless 
um, bike share at the time and now scooter share. We don't even hear the term dockless anymore, but that was what we were trying to communicate to cities in 2017 about the value that that could be had if you didn't require uh, a rider to pick up or drop off a bike at a certain location or station. And what we were really trying to do is reduce the friction that was being caused by those stations. And knowing that, for example, in New York City, huge swaths of the city had absolutely no bike share because um, the operator didn't find the value or wasn't ready to invest in those communities. And so what we were bringing was a different solution. And it was a solution based on technology, but it also required us, and, and it was one of my chief roles, to communicate to cities about a different vision. And that was a vision for decarbonizing transportation, making it more affordable, making it more accessible, and thinking about it in a different way. And it also involved us you know, talking about the things that they may perceive as a negative to our service. I mean, you hear about, and we're not going to, I'm happy to dive right into it around, you know, the clutter of dockless bike share or scooter share. Now, there's absolutely no question that parking could be improved in many situations. And there's many technologies and solutions that we put in place that have done that. But it also involved uh, demystifying the notion that um, it's okay to see a scooter or bike where you hadn't seen it before. We accept cars all the time in places that we don't want them. If you go around cities and take note, you'll see cars double parked, illegally parked, et cetera, et cetera, down the list. And we had to communicate a new vision for cities and also had to raise the flag on what are we up against and what are we helping solve? And perhaps the status quo isn't quite as good as folks are perceiving it to be. And there was actually a great study in, in early on in San Jose that looked at um, parking infractions of our bike and scooter service versus parking infractions from cars. And, and it actually showed cars were far more, uh, far more in violation of the vehicle code than, than dockless bike share at the time. So I know that's a long-winded way of saying that how, you know, talking about how communication was vital to the business's founding, but it you know, played a, obviously a very central part. Right. I picked up on it slightly. Um, but to what extent do you think that that technological uh, spark that happened in a moment in time links to, for example, the boom of, of Uber? And how do you sort of see, uh, how do you see that trend of, of micromobility uh, and the transition that's happened uh, in urban mobility? I mean, I think we're a bit on the coattails or the tailwinds of, you know, the Ubers of the world in that people became used to hailing transportation in cities in a different way, uh, primarily through a smartphone. But we're also a solution to Uber where people were sold and told, particularly I'm thinking about cities here, but more broadly as, a, as communities, that you know Uber and Lyft and other services help, might help reduce car use and transportation problems because you wouldn't have to own a car. That hasn't really transpired. And we actually have been and found we've been a partner of Ubers, but we've also found that we can supply trips that they otherwise would have been providing. And so you see a significant mode shift from Ubers, Lyfts, ride hail, taxi um, across the globe in the 200 plus markets where we operate. And and that's a real benefit where you can see people taking a bike or a scooter, which you know weighs you know 40 kilograms versus 
a car which was weigh two, three, four tons, and obviously the carbon impl implications of that. And so, um, you know, I would say both tailwinds and solution to the technology that's been emerging in cities. Right, and we'll come on to onto the entrepreneurship and innovation side of things uh, later in the conversation. Um, but I think, uh, as you picked up on there, there's an important and perhaps rather contentious and frictional conversation to be had um, about sustainability and specifically environmental sustainability. Um, after your work in Congress, you moved into the private sector uh, and especially the, uh, the energy industry. Um, from my limited but nevertheless eye-opening work uh, in the public sector, um, and for anyone who might have had the exhilarating joy of working uh, with a committee or or an agency, a public institution, um, one quickly realizes that that world is oftentimes quite slow, uh, process rather than outcome driven um, and bureaucratic. The old adage, uh, bureaucrats make bureaucracy for a living, I find holds very true. Um, but what change did you have to make as an individual uh, going from the public sector to the private sector um, and what parts of yourself did you really have to have to look at and adapt? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you a brief story of what led me to leave the public sector first because I think it's a perfect segue around the pace of change. Um, I was actually working on the Hill for Congressman Welch at the time and we had, um, and this was part of my portfolio, developed a program called Homestar, which was a, a national home retrofit program, energy efficiency that would have helped improve uh, home efficiency and reduce emissions. And we had built this dream coalition. We had on one hand, the National Association of Home Builders, uh, industry like Dow, Owens Corning, Home Depot, Lowe's, they were all on board because it was good for business. At the same time, we had the um, League of Conservation Voters and all the environmental groups and labor on board because it was good for jobs and good for the environment. We had this dream coalition, never had a bill been scored the same way by the National Association of Home Builders and the, and the League of Conservation Voters. And President Obama endorsed the bill and he invited us all out to Home Depot in across the river. I believe it was in Alexandria or Fairfax. And we had not even crossed the river back to Capitol Hill to find that Mitch McConnell, then the Senate leader, had said it's dead on arrival because it would create jobs and was too good for President Obama's reelection. At that moment, I realized, wait a second, why am I spending time on Capitol Hill when I could be doing work on the same issue in the private sector where we could move faster and not have as many um, obstructions? And that's not to say that the good work that folks do and need to do on Capitol Hill today shouldn't be happening. It's vital. People have got to keep fighting the fight. But for me, four years was enough. I was ready to do it in the private sector. And it was important for me to be doing work that had impact that pursued the similar sustainability and climate mission that I was on, but that could move a bit faster. And I think it was a fairly natural transition. I mean, the energy sector, and in this case, the renewable energy sector, I was working in solar and in some cases we did developed a few wind projects um they that industry is very much linked to government and regulation and we had to find a way to navigate regulations and had to find a way to build a business and an industry around the existing regulations and think about ways to tweak the regulations to make them better to be able to grow a bigger industry and i found that incredibly fulfilling because 
growing a bigger renewable energy industry felt right up my alley and right up um, uh, the the mission that I have hoped to you know guide my career around. Right, and you've you've given me the perfect runway here. Um, uh oh. Because <laughs> if you if you allow me to be to be candid and 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 honest for a minute, uh, of course, I'm, yeah, I'm quite skeptical as to the way on the national level that that climate change has been perceived and consequently how we've gone about solving it. Um, mm. I really think that to a great extent we've lost a lot of nuance in the conversation um, and deep-rooted climate alarmism has caused irresponsible government spending uh, and regulations and red tape that really don't get us anywhere um, and resources that are spent that could be spent on other pressing issues uh, around the world. Uh, just to name a few, that there's still 1.5 million people dying from TB uh, in the developing world every year where we've got a hold of it in the rich world and and the cold deaths that, that are greater than the heat-related deaths. Um, but climate change is obviously certainly, is certainly a problem, um, but I think a responsible government, the irresponsible role government has played um, has, for me, uh, wasted a lot of resources with, with very little benefit. Um, and, and the solution, uh, as I come to, lies in innovation. Um, and I really think that's the way we're going to get somewhere in the long run uh, and make permanent change that takes people with us. Um, so, for example, solutions to the way we move within our urban environments, uh, to scientific advancements, to the way we extract energy. I think that's really the way we're, we're going to forge our way forward. Uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's elements there that, I mean, there's so much we could dive into there. But I think in many ways, um, you know, government has been in the way of effectively addressing climate change because we haven't and this isn't just the United States, but in many other countries, been able to break away from the old systems and the entrenched industries and interests. Uh, you know, we should not be providing tax breaks to oil, gas, et cetera, when they're established industries, they are, have been stood up. They don't, they, you know, they certainly need more innovation, but they don't need more money. Um, and so I think there's cases where you can see climate action um, um, slowed or diverted because of not being willing to make the right or appropriate tr trade-offs in terms of prioritization. And, you know, you listed a number of pressing um, global challenges, health challenges that are real. And if you're not addressing each of the challenges effectively, you aren't able to have the resources to, um, to you know, to, to, to be effective, right? So if you're wasting money on oil and gas, for example, you're not able to spend it on TB or you're not able to spend it on renewables, et cetera. So I think there's a, you know, there's tremendous, there's clearly a ton of examples where we could have been doing better and stoking better innovation on climate um, more effectively. And I think, you know, there's examples where, where things are going better. Um, and then there's examples where we still just aren't making headway fast enough. Yeah, I, I mean, just, just looking into into the data, I think the road that we have been on has actually over the past century, if, if we look at it on that on that scale, uh, has been a positive one, a really positive one, and and I think that gives some clues to the action we should be taking now. Uh, climate related deaths from from climate related disasters are down ninety nine percent over the last century, um, and the impact on GDP that climate will have is. Is minuscule. That's not to say that it, that it's not a problem that needs addressing. But I think we really need to, to pull people with us. Um, so especially at Lime and your work there, how do you go about tackling this issue uh, in a way that brings people with you? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess one question for you around the, just jumping back to the the climate related deaths. Yeah. I mean, is that climate change induced deaths must be higher because climate change has really accelerated in the last few decades? But you're probably citing broader sort of climate impacts, um, sort of the uh, environmental impacts versus climate change related impacts. So is I that think right? that, that's deaths from uh, natural disasters cause uh, climate related natural disasters. So hurricanes, heat waves, droughts, floods, the sorts. Right. So we, we, on one hand, might be more resilient to natural causes, but I'm curious if, you, if we parsed the impacts of climate change-related deaths, what that would look like over the sort of the more recent period. You know, you know now I think, for example, compared to 100 years ago, if you had an you know, enormous snowstorm across the Northeast, 100 years ago, you probably would have expected a few climate deaths. Um, I'm curious to know the difference between those climate deaths from 100 years ago versus climate change related deaths from a hurricane that sweeps up, you know, the east coast of Florida, et cetera. It'd be an interesting sort of study to understand uh, those impacts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You asked a bit about, you know, how Lyme thinks about climate change. And really, it is so central to what we do. And I know it's pretty easy for a company to say, oh, climate change is the top reason that we're in business. Um, I actually think with Lyme, it, it really is. Um, I'll be very candid that in the first two years of the company, three years of the company, it was a very dormant muscle for us, the sustainability practices. Like we were, you know, fighting for survival, for growth. And I think um, companies that are in the very early stages are should be and can be afforded a bit of leeway because it's really hard to do everything all at once. And I think as a founder yourself, um, you'll probably experience this, this with Arda that you can't possibly be perfect on all fronts. And, and Lime was not perfect on all fronts. In fact, we weren't that great um, on the sustainability. Right. And, and we've jumped around quite a bit on, on the Lime front, um, but sort of just to, to rein it in and bring it back to, to the beginning, uh, because that's something we haven't, we haven't yet talked about. Talk me through, through the earliest days of Lime. Um, I know you mentioned the sustainability piece came later, um, but talk me through those early days of trying to break through in new markets. Um, I know that was initially on university campuses as well. Um, what was what was the atmosphere like uh, at Lime when it was founded? If I was there um, with you guys, what would it feel like? Um, and what was the vision that kept you guys going? Yeah, it was tough. I won't lie to you. I won't sugarcoat it. I mean, it was a really tough environment where we had... Uh, competitors that weren't all that differentiated from us clamoring to get into markets that we were also trying to get into. And it was not clear at the time who was going to get into what markets or even what how cities were going to decide um, who, who would get in or not get in. And so um, right around the, the beginning half of 2017, when we were just doing bikes, you know, it was a bit of the Wild West. There were no regulations. Um, there was an expectation that we not do things similar to what Uber and Airbnb had done a few years prior, where they would just go into cities and ask for forgiveness. There was an expectation that we not do that because cities didn't want it. And also because our product is so visible in markets. So it's pretty hard to sort of build a presence without being known when you have a a bike that is bright green. Um, so there was a lot of competition to find markets and, I actually loved it in that it allowed me to use the communication skills that we talked about earlier, the understanding of government to try to figure out ways to get into markets. And one of my 
you know, favorite markets was getting into LA first in the micromobility space. We built a relationship with a, a city councilor who really wanted mobility and was willing to sort of take us on in his district and had enough prerogative within the city to say, I'll, I, I will welcome them to my district and we don't have to wait for full city approval. And it was those types of sort of navigations that were happening all across uh, the country at the time of finding ways, whether it was college campuses, um, different um, you know, DOT directors, for example, in Seattle that were really welcoming or city councilors. And it created an environment very much like a campaign environment too, where you were really having to be scrappy. There weren't a lot of processes or well um, established paths and it made it a lot of fun, but it was very, very difficult. And I think the industry grew up a lot. I think, you know, Bird came along later in 2018 and that sort of accelerated growth and also accelerated the levels of challenges that were being had with cities because they were moving a bit faster than we were comfortable. And ultimately, we've had to focus on other things to build a very strong business and the strongest micromobility business uh, in the space. And we could certainly talk about what that looks like, but um, there were some divergences where companies would go out of business because they couldn't figure out how to do the government relations. And there were divergences in how companies could operate and, and did operate to become a uh, more profitable or profitable business, which is the path that we're now on. I, let's talk about that. Why, why is, why is line winning? Why are you winning? Um, you know, I think a bit of a laser focus on operations. Um, what we realized um, pretty early on and didn't necessarily immediately execute on was how important the service and, and the operations were going to be. This wasn't a, a situation where you could just um, deploy a fleet and then hope for the best. We had to hire and train a team and build practices that allowed for the business to succeed. And, you know, we're still on the path of, of, of seeking EBITDA profitability, you know, EBITDA profitability, I think we'll get there. And that has been our intent. Um, but it has only come after really realizing the sort of the fundamentals were so important. If you think about how difficult, and we've talked about this a little bit, the, the services, I mean, we're really running a logistics company because you have the consumer facing app that people see when they want to you know snag a scooter or bike but then you have the lime app which allows us to do things like hotspot deployment and understand what vehicles need to be repaired or what vehicles need to be charged we have a third platform which allows fleet partners logistics partners to do the same where we can tell them hotspots where we want them deployed we can give them a sense of what needs to be picked up and what needs to be deployed um, in some markets where we use that model all of that to say it's a really complex business that required a significant amount of logistics understanding. And I think we invested in that. And I think we stayed laser focused on that. And ultimately we were able to do growth and focus on operations at the same time to be able to scale the business to where we are today. And, um, you know, I, I think in the end we'll, we will see, I think there'll also be a significant amount of consolidation in the industry because in many markets, there simply can't be as many, players as there are today um, and have it worked effectively. Right. And, and something we've discussed uh, privately between us quite a lot, because I mean, that's, that's really a lot of where um, the relatability between Lima and Arda comes in. Um, and we're seeing a lot of the same things in the drone industry, despite uh, its relative um, infancy, let's say to the micro mobility industry. Um, but, but how do you see your work at Lime 
influencing your competition uh what do you think uh especially given the economic situation at the moment what do you think that companies within your space are going to have to look at in particular um and how in these situations do you go about identifying problems and, and addressing them on on a really broad company-wide large scale yeah i mean in terms of how um companies influence each other i think there has been a pretty good up leveling because of the competition and maybe the operational stuff that I just mentioned, it happens behind the scenes, but some of the stuff that's on the front end is really important. Things like introducing a swappable battery that allows for you to reduce the amount of vehicle miles traveled just to manage the fleet. You know, that came about and became more widespread because of competition. Every company wanted to do it the best way. And yeah, there's some economic benefits behind the scenes, but on the front end of the business, cities and key stakeholders were seeing a more efficient operation. So you could sort of replicate that across many scenarios and sustainability is certainly one of them where I think each company that has wanted to be credible with cities has had to continuously up-level the work that it's doing on the sustainability front. It's what led us to bold climate goals and setting a science-based target and a net zero goal. It's led us to renewable energy for charging in warehouses, the whole myriad of things that we've done as a company. And I think um, often when you're able to, from a sort of uh, systems change perspective, relate the things that will help grow the business to the things that you need to get done to be competitive. When you can make those two and two connections, it certainly accelerates the ability to get them done. And with cities as our primary stakeholder, giving us literally often the license to operate and riders being a, our riders, right? An incredibly key stakeholder. With both of them, riders and cities asking for something like sustainability or high quality hardware, um, high uptime, things like that. It really forces you to up-level the work as a business. And I think we're held in account for that as well. And so that's, it's been actually nice that even if, even if it's been hard, that there's been alignment between the things that cities and, and riders want and also leading towards a profitable business. Those, they're not mutually exclusive. They're sort of running right in parallel. Right. And talk me through some of the ways in which Lime uh, gauges its, its user base um, and its riders um, and uses that to influence what you do at the company because there's an interesting dynamic at Lime and and with us at Arda as well, you need to you cross the city barrier, the the regulation and regional barrier first, and then only the riders come into play. But but once you cross that barrier, what's that relationship like with the rider? Uh, how are you gauging uh, information from them and, and how are you responding to them? Yeah, I mean, we do a significant amount of rider surveys to understand both the practices that our riders are taking and you know, why they're taking a scooter or a bike and what they're using it for, but also to understand their pain points. And that feedback it directly ties to things like hardware design. Um, we now have a larger front wheel on our scooters. It's a more uh, with curved handlebars. If you've seen them out in markets where you are, you know, it's a more comfortable uh, experience. And that stuff comes straight out of rider experience that we glean from them. Um, and we also learn a lot about what they want to see of us as a company. And I think living the mission and being a sustainable company is something that we hear from riders all the time. So you're right, you have to get past that city threshold to even have the ability to operate. But then really your, your primary customer is your riders. 
And, you know, I think it's led us to things like lower friction um, ability to uh, grab a scooter or bike from the Uber app where we're now integrated in the Uber app. So someone can say, hey, you know what, this mile long trip or two kilometer trip, I just don't want to take a a car for that. It's going to be $13. I'm going to take a, you know, $4 scooter. So things like that, we learn from riders all the time. And if we're not listening, obviously we're not growing and, and adapting to what riders want us to be doing. I'd, I'd like to ask you for some advice, uh, if I may, um, in every startup and business, as you know, and as I know, and men, as, as many others will know as well, um, you often find yourself with, with your back against the wall. Um, and especially when you're a founder, uh, a lot of the brunt you bear is, is personal um, and, and it influences your life. Um, how do you deal with those setbacks at work and, and how do you stop them influencing your personal life? We'll come on to covid in just a second because i know that was a particularly challenging uh time and place for lion but on a more personal side how do you deal with setbacks and and as someone who's so core to a company and and who's been there right from the start it, it feels like it's your it's your baby uh, how do you deal with that yeah i think it is a good it's a great question and i think it, it maybe seems a little bit cliche but really staying grounded in the rest of your life because you will not be successful if it's the only thing that you're doing. And, you know, right around the time of Lime's uh, founding, we had our second child, my son, who's now a whopping almost five and a half years old, which is somewhat shocking to me. Um, Getting home for them was always the highest priority of the day. I didn't care what else was going on. um, What kind of traffic I would sometimes have to fend off in the Bay Area. I'm glad to not be there anymore. Um, it, it was always that Lime was part of what I was doing and never all of what I was doing. And I think it's really hard to pull off. Um, I think it's candidly why I've been able to continue doing the work and be at a high growth, fast paced company for so long is that I think I've always kept it in perspective. I've tried to stay healthy and get exercise and and not have it sort of bear down on living a well-rounded life. And I think family and, and, and fitness and are two of the things that I've sort of kept near and dear and never kept, lost sight of, despite all the craziness that was going on, particularly around the sort of highest growth periods for the company. Right. And, and COVID was, was a particular challenge for Lyme as it was for, for many other companies, um, with a lot of cities adopting, for good or bad, strict guidelines uh, on mobility um, on social interaction right. um, and, and livelihoods. I think uh, it's stated, stated online, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you had to pause about 99% of your your market operations and, and had to lay off 14% of your workforce during this time. How do you get through that as a company? Yeah, it was brutal. I mean, I remember, you know, we get daily reports on on from every market what has, you know, what has transpired the previous day, trips per day, revenue, all the whole bit. And to go from, we were probably a month away from being free cash flow positive. Uh, if you picture COVID hitting the you know first week in March, uh, that's right when seasonality kicks in for our seasonal business, and we would have been very likely free and clear um, and cash flow positive. Instead, as you noted um, with your good research, which I'm not surprised about, um, we shut down everything other than South Korea. Um, and it was brutal because to be one step away from an enormous milestone as a company to then literally fearing for 
the loss of the company, it, it was really tough. I, it was um, it was really tough to think about all the hard work vanishing, being that close to a critical milestone. It was really tough to let go of employees who were friends, had been through the trenches. And, you know, in some ways, once we got through that, it did allow us to double back on how do we run this business well? How do we run this business profitably? And honestly, and this might sound a little bit trivial, but, you know, how to make sure that all the hard work that we and even those who had left the company prior, either because of layoffs or just left prior for other reasons, that there was a sort of a legacy there that we could actually have built something that would have staying power and have the impact that we all wanted it to have. So uh, in part, you know, I think we're now sort of in whatever act this is, I would say it's at least act two, but maybe more if you sort of slice it a few different ways, because we've added different vehicles to the mix and geographic, you know, expansions, you know, wherever we are today, it's really all about seeing this through so that we actually have the impact that we want to have and candidly the staying power as a as a new industry and just wrapping up something that's that's really relevant to me in particular uh your work with with impact startups um what does it do for you to be able to have a key enclosed and influential role in startups um to be continuously a part of that scene um and what value do you see in people coming up with an idea and running with it? I mean, I, the value that I get is I, I love startups. I love the creative thinking. I love the idea that virtually anything is possible. And I know that through the experience at Lime, there's a lot of lessons learned, good and bad, that could be helpful to the next startups in line. Like we need these companies out there, especially in the impact space and the climate space. Um, and social innovation space to be successful, to keep having, uh, you know, a prosperous and, and good world. And I love the idea of being able to help. Um, I get energy from it as much as, uh, as I, I, I contribute back. Um, and it's just so important that, that those who have really exciting ideas can find help and find funding and be able to, to get some flight and see if, if, if the ideas stick and, you know, we know not all startups succeed. That's fine. That's part of the business. Uh, but we need some of them too, because with that, we get a much uh, better world. Right. Absolutely. And and as a closing question, um, I hope to make this a bit of a tradition, but but we'll see. We'll see where it ends up. Oh. Maybe your, your answer will, will define that. Um, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure at all. No pressure at all. Um, what adventure are you currently on? Oh man. I think it goes back to living a balanced life. I love the adventure of Lyme, but it does not fully define me. And my goal is to keep finding micro adventures along the way. Um, I do a bunch of bike racing and I do a bunch of familying and dadding. And I love all of those. And I hope to keep having uh, parallel adventures along with the professional adventure. Amazing. You have to tell me about the uh, the bike racing scene in Vermont sometime. Happy to. Andrew, it's been it's been a real pleasure. Um I I mentioned at the start, but the work we've done together over the past year has has been has been special. And I know I can speak for Jan as well, has really impacted both of us in a really positive way. Um and it's been great to find out more um about your career, your journey, uh your life, and I'm sure that there's a lot to take away from it. So 
thank you again for for taking the time. Yeah, of course. And and likewise, I wish you guys the best of success. I'll be there right along uh, the way. And and I'm excited to see what's to come uh, for you guys as well. Amazing. Thank you.